Welcome to the Sendcast. My name is Dale Pickles. I'm the Managing Director of B Squared and the host of the Sendcast, the Special Needs Podcast. Each week, we'll be talking about a different topic within the world of special educational needs to improve our knowledge, to provide support to professionals working in schools, and to empower parents. In a world where there is less guidance, less money, more demand, and continual changes, teachers, Senkos, and leaders need to weigh to keep up that fits in with their lives, and the Sendcast is the answer. In this episode, my guest is Kate Browning. Kate is an independent consultant supporting schools making improvements around SEND. In this episode, we're talking about identifying SEND and how to ensure you're doing this correctly using a whole school approach. But before we get started, do you know much about B-Squared? We have been around for around 25 years, helping schools to show the small steps of progress pupils with SEND make. We have a range of products and assessment frameworks covering the new early years framework that is coming into effect in 2021. We also have frameworks covering the primary, secondary range for pupils with SCND, the new relationship and sex education guidance. We have functional skills assessments covering above and below the entry levels, life skills, preparing for adulthood, and employability skills. We also have an amazing program called Eversense, which makes evidencing progress and wider achievements really easy and helps increase parental engagement. If you want to find out about more about what we do, in the show notes, there'll be a link to book a free online meeting with myself to find out more about what B-Squared do. Now on with the podcast. On this week's show, we're discussing how do we identify SEND and what should a whole school approach look like? My guest this week is Kate Browning, an independent SEND consultant who focuses on school improvement for SEND. She has been, and I'm going to give you the short version of this one, a SENCO, SEND advisory teacher, local authority school improvement officer for SEND, and interim education development officer for NASEM. She teaches NASENCO course for the University of Northampton and lectures at the University of Warwick on their PGCE program. In all her spare time, Kate facilitates the Senko network across Leicestershire, Warwickshire, and Derbyshire. She supports governors and is also a chair of governors herself. Welcome to the show, Kate. Thank you very much, Dale. Good to be here. Excellent. So how do you identify SEND is a question that, although very, very short, the answer is very complex and has lots of layers. There's lots of people involved in the process. There is the process itself. There are the assessments, the need for evidence, planning, support, and more. And it all needs to be done in line with the SEND code of practice. Yes, indeed. And it's it's one of those questions that I think certainly when you become a new SENCO, you're you're the most anxious about. Certainly when I do the SENCO award course, it's it's the one that comes up first and foremost. Should they be on? Shouldn't they be on? Should I have this child on the register? Shouldn't I have this child on the register? You know, so it it, it is um an important one to get to grips with. And and I think what we need to be thinking about first and foremost is the importance of ensuring that you've got really robust whole school systems for identifying need not necessarily at this point in time thinking about special educational need because we're not we're not necessarily always sure about that at first but certainly picking up need so Every school is, you know, we're, we're assessing kids like we've never assessed them before, aren't we, at the moment? I mean, that yep. we're, we're at every step of the way, we're summatively, hopefully formatively picking up where those gaps are in their learning, their misunderstandings. So we're doing that. That's a really important foundation. That's a really good, good start. That's a whole school approach. It's assessing, planning, doing, reviewing at a whole school level. So what we're wanting here 
because it's not it's not going to be the Senko that you know picks up these needs. It's going to have no. to be the class of subject teachers that pick these up. So we're just within that whole school approach, needing to ensure we've got teachers who are spotting as early as possible points where a child is not progressing and where and we're not just thinking about our reading writing and maths but we're thinking about the broad area broadest areas of development as, as we can think of and again this is where it's helpful to think about those four broad areas of need yeah. so although we're not talking about SDN at the moment necessarily just thinking in the realm of cognition and learning communication interaction social emotional mental health sensory and physical development can our teachers are they confident to be able to spot where children aren't making good progress despite really good teaching going on so utilizing really good formative summative assessments observation conversation communication with parents the child themselves being able to really pick up where those children's development is is just not where it should be. The vehicle through through that might well be through your pupil progress meetings, your department meetings, where you know that's where we need to make sure those conversations are, are being had. Picking them up as early as possible, we know that intervening at that point, we've got to have much better trajectories of progress. Yeah. That's not to say that some children's needs won't emerge as they get older because sometimes they do you know and the fact yeah. that code of practice identifies that it says some children young people's difficulties only become apparent as they develop so we need to be alert to emerging difficulties it doesn't say alert to special needs it says alert to emerging difficulties so having class subject teachers that are alert that that are thinking about children's development across those broad areas being able to utilise those whole school systems around assessment to pick up the gaps, the barriers to learning, the lack of progression is, is, is sort of your first important area to sort of really check is robust. And then I think... Can, we just, can I just discuss yeah. that bit? So that whole um, teachers being aware of those other areas of need, that is, is to me really important. And I don't, to me, the broad areas of need in most mainstream schools do not have enough presence in that school yeah in terms of knowledge or training or experience or understanding so to me cognition and learning is kind of what schools are about and there's a few other woolly bits but generally we're english and maths we're reading writing maths we're sats that's all we're aiming at and i think a lot of the training focuses on that and you just know that through various bits of work you do that actually you hear, you can hear conversations going on in school and you're looking at it and you can sit, probably sit there and just go, oh, what you just said, that sounds like this. What you just said, that sounds like this. And you almost like, have you ever thought of it? And it is, when I think of being able to identify SCND, it's as a non-teacher who's never taught in a classroom, done any of that, I'm literally going, oh, how do you identify dyslexia? How do you identify this? And it's not about that. This is more the process. But there is, and this is where that whole school assessments, that pro, all these tools you've talked about, that's where they come in. That's where that helps you. You've got this system. You should have things to help you identify. But I suppose you really need, every teacher needs, needs some sort of awareness of how different difficulties present. Yes. And I think that's on a, a, a what I would advise is, is, is having a, that rolling program of CPD really 
around some of the 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 high incidence needs slash special educational needs and disabilities. So thinking around your dyslexia, your dyspraxia, your dyscalculia, your ASC, your ADHD attachment, you know, having that rolling program of 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 CPD in that area so teachers are confident that they can sort of begin to pick up any possible emerging difficulties in those areas. That does not mean to say though that we are we can't diagnose and we're not we're not, no. we're not we're not seeking to you know find yeah. a spot yeah I'm gonna find what's wrong. Yes, oh that's it, you know, you've got a diagnose yeah, we need to it, it's a it's a because of because obviously we're understanding more about that neurodiversity and yeah. that, you know we it's one mass Venn diagram, you know, where we're lots of us are on sort of the, have have a profile across many of those areas. And I think that's really important to register. But yes, certainly having a a rolling program of CPD around those high incidence needs can help be able to pick up those and be confident in picking up those emerging difficulties. Yeah, I totally agree with you. It's it's changed that language from, oh, he's a troublemaker to all behavior is communication. All behavior is a communication. There's a huge link between the SEMH and lack of communication skills. So when you have children who are constantly disrupting class, they yeah. get that persistent disruptive behavior, if that's the right way around. All those sorts of things is rather going, oh, it's a troublemaker or it's this or it's that. It's like going, why? That's so all you've got to do is change that question to a why. You might not be able to, as you said, you might not be able to identify, but it's changing that from, oh, he's just, oh, he's always naughty. He's yeah. always too. Yeah, perhaps he's really struggling. Perhaps mm. she's struggling. Perhaps she can't cope with something. And this is her way of getting out of that situation. Yeah. So it, it, teachers need to be aware of that, that there is a communication going on. It's not the best form, but it is a communication. And they might be them asking for help, or they're not knowing how to do anything or not being aware of it. It's just a whole huge area. And it's just changing that, okay, then, oh, is there something going on here? That's always, it's always that thing. It's like the safeguarding. Yes. You should always be asking, what if? Or be thinking about it. And it, to me, with needs, you ask, you know, if someone's constantly being disruptive, you should be able to sit there and go, is there a need here? Mm. I don't know what. No, and that's, that's something that is is talked about many, many times, is that idea of, of what's above and below the iceberg. You know, the, the above the iceberg is is the behaviour, it's what we're seeing, it's the lack of progress, it's the, you know, it's the withdrawn behaviors it's the work avoidance behaviors it's the whatever it is you know but it's the why that you quite rightly said you know that helps us dive down and and look underneath the iceberg and when we begin to unpick the why that helps us then go to the next stage which is the plan you know we're sort of in the realms of the assess bit here aren't we yeah and something that I, i think we tend to do we leap to too quickly as and i think as as senkos as, as much as anything else is we're trying to get to the the plan bit too quickly and actually sometimes you need to slow down to speed up you know actually slow down and go okay what's going on here let's think about why this child is not progressing in this area or is behaving like they are but that that is not easy no goodness knows i wish it was you know <laughs> you know but it, but and we do it collaboratively and i think that's the important thing to have again we go back to our systems and our structures you know having those people progress meetings having those opportunities to to collaborate and discuss and consult with other class teachers subject teachers to think what's going on here i've got this kid today and, and you know ju- i just don't know where i'm going you know what what could be 
the reason, you know, why this behavior is occurring. As you say, it's communicating something. I love to think about, I went to a course, this was years ago, I went on a course, I had this fabulous chap who talked about challenging behavior being, or even withdrawal behavior being children trying to solve a problem. So it's that's but their problem, their problem solving technique is inappropriate. So they have an inappropriate problem solving technique. So what we need to do as teachers is find out what problem are they trying to solve by behaving the way they are. Yes. That sort of really shifted in my head. And then, yeah. uh, you know, my, my paradigm around behavior in its widest sense and help dive down underneath the iceberg to think what is going on here. So, and it's, you know, it's useful going back to those previous class teachers. Mm. So, you might have a child arrive in your class this year, you think he's a troublemaker, find out from the previous teacher, and you might go back and you could be a year five teacher and find out that it really started about year three. And then you, you start to now get bits more information. And it is, as you said, tying as many bits together, bits of evidence that you can put together and do a whole pyro, Miss Marple, whatever you prefer to be, and just tying it all together. And you might come to a conclusion, but the more information you have, Yes. The more you then have to go to someone else, go, look, this is what I'm seeing. I don't know what this means. Yeah. And, and sometimes that is, that, that, is a, that is a process that will continue. I mean, assess, plan, do, review doesn't stop after one cycle. You know, we keep going round. We keep refining, revising, revisiting. As that child, guess, you know, guess what? They actually develop and change. You know? yes. And, and that's, that's all part of that process. But you know, the code of practice does say that withdrawn or disruptive behavior doesn't automatically mean SEN. That's, you know, when the code of practice was revised and rewritten, we behavior came out of, we didn't have that behavior, emotional, social difficulties, and that sort of shifted to social, emotional, and mental health for this very reason, and quite, and quite rightly so. So again, if we just take ourselves back to the class teacher, subject teacher, picking up there's problems here, there's difficulties, there's gaps in learning, there's behavior that's not, you know, quite where it should be. And, you know, diving down under the iceberg, thinking about why that might be happening. And in identifying as far as they can figure out at that point why, again, through conversation, talking to the teacher, talking to, um, sorry, previous teachers, maybe talking to the parents, talking to the child themselves, then the onus is on intervening doing something again not necessarily immediately running to the senko going hey i've got another one for you on the re register you know but actually thinking at that point what needs to happen what 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 am i going to do that's different at this point than we've been doing already so there's a, a need to intervene not necessarily an intervention but certainly intervening teaching attention in the area that we've identified as problematic and doing that at this point through adapting high quality teaching. And then the code of practice says, and then we need to monitor the response. And again, we're still talking about the class subject teacher's responsibility here. We might not have even spoken to the Senko yet. Might not. No. But monitoring that response and gathering that intelligence, gathering how does that child respond? So I'm gonna and again, this is all assessing, planning, doing, reviewing, isn't it? But it's it's, yeah. it's not at the point of you know, SEN at so, this point in time. No, because you might have identified they're struggling with something and you can just make a small adjustment, which means that almost like you're saying, well, you're struggling with this bit, so let's let's put that in place and that bit's gone. And then you can say, okay, so we've got rid of that. Okay, okay we're now hitting this. And it'll help you then sort of see. And you might sit there and go, there's five steps in this process. You've worked out how to help support step one, then it's then step two. And you might get to step five and you go, okay, 
we've got this working. I haven't needed to get anyone involved. It's just a few small changes. Yes, and and that's what we hope for, isn't it? It, it is a small, there's yeah. small changes, but you're peeling back those layers, you know, yeah. of the onion, as it were, and just trying to think, what, what am I getting at, getting to here? And and then, you know, if you come, the teacher comes to the point where they're thinking, do you know what, this is this is getting complicated. That, that this child is still not making the progress. I've tried to make adjustments. We're getting a little, we're getting somewhere, but we're not getting far enough. Or, or identifying that actually, if we're going to increase and improve this child's pr- progress, we're going to need a lot more support. Or I definitely need more help and I'm trying to unpick what's going on here. That's the point where we need to talk to the Senko. That's the point where we would, within our whole school systems and structures, perhaps be getting the, the subject teacher, class teacher to be con- contributing to completing something like an initial concerns checklist. So schools have various kind of processes for this to happen, but essentially all it is is, is, a, is a vehicle through which you can brain dump. You know, you can literally put everything down that we know about, the strengths, the difficulties that this child is facing at the moment, and making sure that there is the parent views in that, the child's views in that as well, so that we get as much of a 360 picture. It might be if that child's recently come into school, we've got information from previous school or previous class teacher as well, feeder schools, feeder settings. So we build that picture collaboratively to try and sort of dig a bit deeper. And I suppose at that moment, you are just sort of talking to the parent in this part. Is just sort of saying, okay, I've noticed they're struggling with this or finding this difficulty. And then kind of just seeing how that parent responds, mm. seeing if they've noticed it, anything like that, or they'll say, yes, we've noticed. And just you're basically you're having that conversation. You might even at that point, remember, giving them some things that you can help. Okay, you're not doing that at home. If you do this, we might see it. And it's just having that sort of thing. And that all goes into this sort of brain dump, doesn't it? Absolutely. And, and what were the last thing we want to do? Can you imagine, you know, how a parent must feel if, you know, you, you sort of part way through year three or something and, 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 a, and a Senko comes to you with a conversation and says, we're going to place your child on the SEM register. And you have absolutely no idea that your child is, is doing anything other than progressing very well, nicely. Thank you very much. You know, those conversations need to be had honestly, sensitively, you know, from the earliest start. And, and, and I think... Yeah. Nine times out of ten, I think that that happens, but but we need to make sure it is actually within our systems and structures to do that, to make sure that is happening. And and new teachers need help with confidence in talking to parents about things like that. I think particularly, I know the newly qualified, the so recently qualified teachers that I work with say, oh, I, do, I do worry about having those conversations when I have to say, you know, we ha- we have some concerns about how our child is your child is developing in certain areas and but those are necessary important conversations to have and it might be that you know you do that alongside your newly qualified teachers you know so to actually support model that for them that's not to say some newly qualified teachers are brilliant and they you know yeah straight away but if it is an area of anxiety for them that's important thing to do one of the things so as from a parent's point of view is my daughter was in i can't remember if it was beginning year six or end of year five but she was doing an after-school club with a teacher who was the reception teacher. So she'd known my daughter for six years. She knows what my daughter's like. And she was doing this after-school club. And I think the first few were finding up, then my daughter just went a bit off. 
And that's and she literally after about the third week, she, she phoned us up and went, Maisie's not herself. She's just seems off and distant and not the spark or not this, just her personality's gone. And it was lovely because she phoned and made, made my daughter had, but she'd been having some friendship issues. But she wasn't in the group with those friends because it was a mixed day. So basically, the things were, it was affecting her. And we were working through, we weren't, weren't involved in the school because it was just silly playground stuff. So it wasn't really big stuff. It was just Classic lots of on. <laughs> and it is those ongoing, and it's a single form entry school. So if someone annoys you, tough. You've got to get to the end of primary before you move on. It is, there were limited options. And it was just, I think, grinding her down at the time. But was, I loved the fact that this teacher who knew her just phoned us up and had a conversation. So we could see it was bits, but we didn't realize it was sort of demonstrating or appearing and this teacher could see it. And so for us, it just sort of made us go, okay, we need perhaps maybe to train the track. We were trying this approach. Let's try a different approach. And yeah, I think she got happier. But it was for me, the fact that the teacher who just knew her just phoned us up out of the blue and just went, yeah, Maisie's not right. I loved it. It was just the best thing ever for me that someone who knew her was looking out for her. Yeah. So that's, that's for me, that's what I got as a parent. It's not that, again, different situations, you could take it differently. But to me, a phone call like that is someone taking an interest in the care and looking after my child. I didn't see that my daughter was being told off. I didn't see that my daughter was negative. I just saw someone no looking after my daughter. You either. Yeah, you're yes. not judged because of it. Or, yeah. No, and that's, that's how I took that phone call. It was... Is, is she all right? Is she happy? What's, what is, it's not right. It's, she's struggling with this. And it, it, it was the social side of it. Yeah. So it wasn't her reading, wasn't her maths, her grades were doing well, not she was, but it was the social side. It was how she was interacting in that thing with other children and interacting with her. That's what it just set her off. There's a, a, a sort of three things there that strike me. It is that the school knows your that that person knows your child you know to know when something is looking a bit you know not quite where they should be that's not normally how she behaves and the care you know the the care to do that to pick up the phone they didn't have to do that but they did that and then that all builds trust doesn't it yeah so that you you, you build those relationships so then you know if anything happened further or needed any more intervening, you've already built up that trust with that individual, that teacher, the school to take things further if needed. Yeah, because it, it, it meant also that I, I, said I could go back to them because mm. they've reached out to me. So it already reached out. They're showing an interest and I could happily go back and go, look, this is the situation. This is what we're dealing with. Mm. This is what we're trying to solve. This is, the... And I felt that I'd be able to have that conversation. She would listen. She would look into it and something would change. And I, it just, it was just the, the re, it was a huge step for us. Yeah. That it just, again, it, if someone's coming to you like that, it just opens the door to that conversation. It's a starting point that you know that you can actually sit there and talk back to them. Yeah. Often it's hard for parents. So when you look at your report and go, okay, they're not doing that well. And I've just had parents' evening and it was, seemed all right. Yeah. It just seemed a, but to have a conversation like that, to sit there and go, yeah, we think he can do better or we think she can do more or it's not quite. We felt that is just a door opening. And as a parent, you can then share your concerns or yeah. things. Like that. And it's, it's huge just you know, to have that. And there's, there's no, we think your child has. That's yeah. further down the line. This is, yeah. we noticed 
something. What do you think? Yeah, we value, yeah. you know your child best, better than anyone, you know, well, we value your views on this. This is what we think is, we're seeing from our point of view. What are you seeing? You know, that that is just so important to build that relationship as early uh, uh, as possible. So that, you know, when, when people ask, at what point should I involve parents? At the earliest point ever, you know, right from the start. And if you build those relationships really early on and build that trust like you talked about, then, you know, that's going to pay dividends. That's going to en- enable you to make sure you are able to use your best endeavours. I was just going to bring up that same question because it is, I see that a lot on social media. When do I involve parents? And it's generally a Senko asking this. So it's already like, it's already too late. Yes. If the, if the Senko is asking this and you haven't involved the parents, that means you've probably gone through step one, two, three, four, and five. You're now with a Senko. It should have started at step one. This class yeah. teacher should have started that conversation. And it is just with that, we've noticed it. You shouldn't get to the point of going, we think your child's got autism and surprise. Yeah. It shouldn't be a surprise. It should be, that is almost like you're expecting that. So this parent should be expecting that kind of thing from what the conversations you did up to it um, and the level you're looking into it. That parent should have been on that journey with you. Yes. And, and, and I think it's also acknowledging that sometimes they are, as I mentioned, difficult conversations, but we, we mustn't shy away from them. So recognizing or saying to teachers, you know, it, it, these aren't easy conversations. If you need help sitting with a parent and talking through these things, then I, we can help you. Your it doesn't have to be the Senko. It could be whoever your line managers. It could be another your, your uh, year group department lead or your year group lead can sit and have help you and model how to have those conversations because it, it is a bit of a, an area of anxiety for 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 some for some teachers. But it's as as we said, it's so important to do that right at, right at the beginning, really. But I think I think. The, the earlier you have that conversation, the easier it is because you're not. There's no bombshell going on here. The longer you leave it, the more difficult that conversation is because the parent has no idea, and yet you've got all these concerns you haven't had. Whereas if you start this from the very beginning with just a, yeah. we've noticed, or your child is, just starting at that very early stage. Yeah, and and they might just have that nugget of information that makes everything fall into place. And if you had that yes. early on. Then and and sometimes there are things that, that that it's really hard for parents to voluntarily come and tell us. You know they've got their own you know things to deal with in their lives, and it might be that some of what we're seeing above the iceberg in in, in school is because of something that's perhaps going on at school or, or at home, or maybe exacerbated by what's going on at home. And sometimes that's difficult for parents to come and talk to. So if we reach out, build that trust and care then it enables them to be hopefully as open with us so that we can non-judgmentally, really important, non-judgmentally, you know, support both them and, and, and their and their child for to do, to do the very best that we can. Yeah. So given all that, then if I think if if teachers have made those interventions in terms of, you know, trying to unpick what's going on, make those adaptions to high quality teaching, but are still finding yeah, when when really not making the progress we we really want to see, or actually, I'm recognising that in order to get anywhere, we're actually going to need to put quite a bit more additional different provision in here. That's when we pull that initial concerns checklist together and begin to have a conversation with the Senko. And at that point, the Senko will be looking at the 
definition of Sen, the code of practices definition of Sen, because that's really the only thing we kind of got to go on in terms of whether we're not we're, we're saying we need to meet this child's needs through now the guidance that we have in the code of practice or whether actually a whole school systems are should be able to do that in and of themselves so I think if we just pick up for a minute Dale the that legal definition and just try and help listeners sort of understand that because it's it's an important one. It's certainly, I know when I'm doing the Nasenko course, we we could spend a whole day looking at this, to be perfectly honest, but it's but it's important. So imagine you've got your initial concerns checklist there. You've got the teacher with you. You've had the conversation with the parent and the child, and you're now looking at your definition of, of SEN, and, you, and that's when you're beginning to think, you know, is it SEN or isn't it? So the Code of Practice says a child or young person has SEN if they have and it mentions two things here, a learning difficulty or a disability. Okay, so if we take the learning difficulty bit first, they have a learning difficulty, which is significantly greater difficulty learning than the majority of children the same age. Okay, now we'll come back to how significant is significant in a minute. (laughs) (laughs) Or, Or a disability which prevents or hinders them from making use of educational facilities of a kind that we provide for others of the same age. So I think if we think about those two dual areas, first of all, the the learning difficulty, significantly greater difficulty learning, or the disability preventing or hindering them making use of educational facilities. And because of either of those, it calls for us to put in place special educational provision. So what is special about this educational provision? Well, it's special because it's additional to or different from uh, what we make generally for children or young people of the same age. So we go back to our child. We go back to that initial concerns checklist and we think, okay, first of all, do we have a, a recognised disability here? Maybe, maybe not. We'll come back to that in a minute. But if, if they haven't, so there's no a diagnosis of ASD or ADHD, etc., then we might be looking at a learning difficulty. So then we're thinking, well, how significant is that? Well, if in fact we have gone through the process of making adjustments to our high quality teaching and we've intervened, we've provided our teaching attention, and they've st- even with that, we're still not making the progress we want, then we can generally say that child is having a significantly greater difficulty learning because actually now we've recognised that we need to put additional different provision in place to push that rate of progress up. That additional different provision is our SEN support. They need that SEN support now to keep that trajectory of progress up. Without that, it drops down. We need that SEN support because our high quality teaching alone isn't going to do the job. Yeah. So that's the tipping point. Now, when I say how significant is significant, of course, that will vary from school to school. It will do because, you know, some some schools are a bit further down the line and in inclusive quality first teaching and can meet a broader range of needs without needing to call on the notional budget and SEN support. And other schools are going to need to. But we, you know, if we're pushing in the direction of improving our quality first teaching bit by bit, year by year, becoming more and more inclusive 
then hopefully the less we are going to need to call on our SCN support um, and hence so the national budget. So in terms of learning mm. and that, what does that cover? Because we're not just saying, oh, they're struggling at mass. No. Is that covering it's the, their every, social, it's, their communication? It is covering anything that yes. is affecting their learning. Yes, and it's the learning in terms of their, here we go, communication, interaction, cognition, social, emotional, mental health, sensory, physical. Yes, we are thinking about that so right if, across the, the, the spectrum. So if that any of those areas has an impact on that child's learning, a significant impact on that child's learning, even if, in theory, um, if they if you made all these changes, they could get it, but actually without that, they can't. Yeah. That's that support. That is what they're needing. So if they yeah. cannot make that progress due to communication interaction or SEMH or their cognition and learning, any of those areas, you that's where the support is needed. Yes, As, and, and if we cannot make adjustments and ensure that child makes progress without additional difference. So hopefully... And the code yep. of practice says that most children's uh, needs can be met through inclusive, high-quality teaching. And, and, and in indeed, that's what we want to do. We, we want yep. to be able to, bit by bit, year by year, get better and better at being able to meet a broader range of those needs without needing to label that child with SEN and, you know, and, and, and need to put in place additional different. We want to be as inclusive as we can by design as We've a, a new sort of education endowment foundation talks about being inclusive by design. Yeah. Then hopefully, you know, we won't need to um, draw on the additional different, but there will always be children for whom we need to do that for absolutely, and we need to pick up that as quickly as possible. If we could just move now to the disability bit, because that's the sort of a bit that sort of overlaps really, yeah. because I do, um, you know, I get a lot of senkos who say to me, on. Oh, this child has a diagnosis of dot, 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 you know, should I definitely put them on the SEM register? And my answer to them is going back to the definition of SEN. Well, basically, are they able to, is their disability preventing or hindering them making best use of educational facilities of a kind you put in place for other children? And as a result of that, you need to put additional different provision. So your, your question is, are you needing, because of that disability, are you needing to put additional different provision in place for them over and above what you do for, you know, in your great inclusive high quality teaching school environment? Are you needed to go that step further with this child? Call on your SEN, your notional budget in order to ensure they make progress. If that isn't the case, no, actually, they're doing really well. So let's you know, go back to. Are happy. Child's happy. Teacher thinks, yeah, across all those areas of learning, actually, that child's tickety boo. Then, do we need to place them on the SEM register? No. Do we need to make sure that everybody understands their needs? Absolutely. Yeah. Do we need to make sure we have some way of communicating what those the, the difficulties related to that disability are? Absolutely, we do. But we don't necessarily have to you know, go through that, placing them on the SEM register in order to do that, surely. You know, we, we've got plenty of children with lots of different various needs that don't require them being on the SEM register. So so can I just go back to that hmm. disability word? Yeah. So if you read that definition, you immediately think of, because it says access facilities, so immediately I'm in my head I go straight to a physical disability. Hmm. 
but it's more than that, isn't Absolutely, it? Absolutely, yes. Yeah, and, and physical disability is just a tiny element of disability. Yes. So we're, we're in the realms of now the Equality Act. Yeah, so, and this is where the, the code of practice, if you just imagine a Venn diagram, you've got the code of practice and you've got the Equality Act, and there's they overlap slightly in the middle, and that's where your disability bit sits. So you will have a child with disability who, if, if a child has a disability, that they, they will definitely come under the, the, the Equality Act. We absolutely need to make those reasonable adjustments for that young person. And uh, that's why I said, even if they're not on the SEM register, we still need to know how that disability impacts on them and on their learning and make those reasonable adjustments. So they they will sit within that uh, equality at a definition of disability but not in the overlapping bit which is the SEN because of course we have some children with SEN that don't have a disability yes. but some do and it's the overlap in the middle which is why we have an SEND code of practice and not just an SEN code of practice where that disability will require and need us to put that additional different provision in place. So you, so you mentioned earlier uh, ASD yeah. So you're talking with disability, you've got those with the diagnosis? Yes. Yeah. So and it gets, starts getting complicated because you could have someone with a diagnosis, but it's not affecting their learning. Yeah. And then throw in a load of anxiety and various other stuff, which then yeah. is having an impact Absolutely. on their learning. So they yeah. wouldn't get on there purely because they're ASD. It's the other aspects because no children is lovely and lovely and sits in a lovely little tick box world. They are unique and they've met. It's actually their ASD might not be the reason they're on the SEM register. It could be the other parts that are impacting their learning, which is the reason they're on the yeah. register. Yeah, I mean we're, we're neurodiverse, aren't we? So you know we don't we don't behave in silos. You know, you know yes. everything impacts and everything else. So certainly, if if um, that that child is presenting with uh, uh, difficulties in their social, emotional, and mental health that is related to a diagnosis of ASC, then definitely we and and is needing therefore some additional different provision. Then definitely we want them on the SEM register. We you know we definitely need to be making that additional different provision for them that is going to support their mental health. That's absolutely crucial. Um, but it's not the diagnosis in and of itself that places them on the register. Is what I'm trying yep. to say. Yes, it's because you know we want to. Um, ensure that we have um, really inclusive quality first teaching and understanding of the reasonable adjustments that we need to make for uh, children and young people with disabilities at the broadest level and hopefully that will meet more and more children's needs including those with disabilities but where yes where that that um disability is impacting on their learning to the extent that we need additional different provision and put in place then yeah definitely um we would put them on the SEM register and here we go into the assess plan do review spiral that's a bit tighter up around that child now yeah doing that anyway but when they're on the register we tighten up the assess plan do review around that child so we're assessing their needs with our magnifying glass a little bit closer up we're planning for them on more of a personalised level. We're we're um, doing so. We're meeting those needs. We're 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 
focusing on those specific needs more regularly and we're reviewing more regularly, more often probably with uh, and more closely with parents and pupils. Yeah. So I think in order to be able to to sort of um, go back to, to, to doing that, then just thinking about our tools we might need to help us get that magnifying glass closer up and look in more detail at what's going on underneath the iceberg. And we'll continue to look underneath the iceberg, don't we? We don't just do that at the point where we're thinking about whether they're SEN or not. We just keep going back and going back. SS plan, do review, SS plan, do review. You know, it's not plan, do review, plan, do review, plan, do review. Assess yeah, is a big part. Assess it is a big part. And I think it's the bit that we don't spend enough time focused on. As I say, sometimes... Particularly, you know, we might have had that child on the register for a couple of years and we think, you know, we're not really getting anywhere. You know, it's just everything seems to sort of be a bit slowed down and we're not sort of, I think we need to reassess where we're at with this child. And that's the point to slow down. That's the assessment thing is I, I talk to a lot of schools. Obviously, we do assessment products um, and I talk to schools and sort of saying, right, well, you, you can put them on your main system and you can sort of show they're the red they're in the below okay and that why are they below does your assessment system currently help you identify where within the whole of writing this yeah. child is struggling where within the whole of reading is this child struggling is their decoding much higher than their comprehension is it the vice versa is it what part of that is holding them back do you have that information because yeah. if you don't have that information if you just say yeah he's struggling with writing that's not useful. That could be a million things. If you can actually start saying um, it's it's linked to the handwriting, it's linked to the spelling, it's linked to this. But when I talk to them, their their ideas, their composition, their they really deliver a story. It's great, but it's when they write it down, it goes wrong. You're going, well, now I've got something to go on. So it's making sure with that assess, you actually have useful information that will hopefully help you point towards an answer. Yes, you you can't do the plan without doing the assess you know well you can but you, you you basically put a blindfold on and you you know you're just sticking a pin in something you know we you're not going to be um as efficient in your planning if you haven't done in, spent enough time at the assess point and that that doesn't mean tests you know it doesn't always mean let's sit that child through a whole afternoon of a whole gamut of tests it, assessment in its broadest sense means yeah, some standardised assessment tools, and we can talk about what might be useful to have in your on your shelf. Um, but also the conversations, the the observations, um, the the looking in the books. You know, yeah. the talking to the lunchtime supervisor, the the talking to the previous class teacher, the chatting to the child, chatting to the child's friends. Sometimes, depending on what the, the needs are, is going to be uh, um, useful as well. So it's that assessing its broadest sense. When we have that, you know, as much information as we can, then the planning stage is going to be much more targeted, much more effective. In, in, in theory, the planning stage is easier because you've literally gone, oh, they're struggling with that. Well, that's what we've got to focus on. Whereas if, if you have that, yeah. oh, it's writing, I see on social media a lot, what is a good intervention for writing? I'm like, that is the most one of the most useless questions I and I see it again and again I see it on a daily basis it's like no you can't ask that you've got to say 
Um, what is a good intervention for writing? We are struggling with this and this and this at this level. That's how that question should be formed. Yeah. And that's a classic indication of not spending enough time at the assess stage. If you're going yes. to give me an intervention for writing, I know how tempting that can be, Dale. As I say, I know, just, just do something. Let's just do something. I, I know. But actually, it's a false economy. It make, it, you do, you're doing that to make almost someone else happy. You almost like I've got to do this. I've got to do this. I've got to show I'm doing interventions. Let's do a writing intervention call. Let's do a write, good writing intervention call. Great. Someone's recommended this. We'll do that. None of that has actually been aimed at or thought about with that child. It should be child centered. What are their needs? What are they struggling with? How can we make a difference? Uh, that building that profile as accurately as you can, um, and and then just continue to to hone on it. But if if we have it's part of your sort of systems and structures in school. You have a, a a range of assessment tools that you can draw upon to help get that magnifying glass closer up at the assess stage and they therefore plan more t- in a targeted way. That's going to be useful. Um, and the kind of things that you can think about, um, certainly I would have um, a standardised assessment for reading and spelling and there are a number on the market. Um, I would probably have um, a useful assessment for something like receptive language processing come, it will come in there. And then uh, things like criterion referenced assessments as well. So your phonics checks, your high frequency words, your small steps progress in areas of mathematics as well that can ha- enable you to have that kind of diagnostic interview, as it were, you know, with a child to really sort of sit down, watch what they're doing in the learning. Certainly, I mean, maths is something that I feel very passionately about and, and, and learning difficulties in maths, it, it always has been as a, as, a, as a young person myself who didn't find it very easy. Um, I really think the, the only way you can really unpick what's going on is if you actually sit and watch that child, you know, yes. try to do some calculations or whatever it is and chat with them, talk with them, have those conversations to really sort of see what are their what are the processes and nine times out of ten you'll find that there are you know gaps in their learning some um building blocks that are much much further back that actually aren't very secure um that's a whole other podcast by the way dale but anyway but that's that so those kind of criteria reference assessments and then thinking about things like speech and language which is a massive area Yes. Um, and there are some really good tools out there that, that schools can use um, to identify aspects of receptive language, expressive, social, functional and speech sound articulation that can just help you sort of unpick where those difficulties are. Because if we've got a receptive language problem, that will definitely be impacting and expressive, even, you know, impacting on their ability to write. You know, yes. so you need to sort of unpick there and then around the social emotional mental health you know your box all profiles and your sdqs and things like that that can begin to unpick so having a range of assessment tools across the four broad areas of need that teachers and senkos can draw upon in order to be at that assess stage and get that magnifying glass close up will also help hopefully help to refine be part of the refining process as to whether or not actually we need to place them on the SEM register. But also, even if they are on, you know, we keep going back to 
to sort of get closer and closer to what's going on underneath that iceberg. And also know when the tipping point comes to go, actually, we haven't got a foggiest idea. Yes, and it's fine to say that. You know, I absolutely have no idea what's going on here. We've done what we can. And that's when you know you're calling on your specialist support, your educational psychologist, speech therapists, etc. I just want to touch on the reading. So all of that agreed with, completely agree. The one issue I have with reading is to me, I would really want to see a comprehension and a decoding score separate. Because yeah. I know some people say, oh, he's got a reading age of this. And then as you start talking, you find out his decoding is much further on. Absolutely, yeah. Going, well, that's just really highlighting a, there yeah. you go, that's a big difference. We've now got somewhere. Whereas if you just say they've got a reading, an 11-year-old with a reading age of a five-year-old, I'm going, that's still too big. Yeah. Which part of reading? So that's two very big areas. And even with comprehension, there's loads of stuff you can go into. And in our previous podcast talking with, um, I can't remember, it was Ang Harrod on verbal reasoning. There's a whole load of stuff and understanding the abstractness and things like that and being able to... There's a whole load of that around that which you can unpick. But if you just have a reading age, it's not the most useful. You need more than that. Absolutely. And I think this is something that we've seen more in schools as we've got better and better um, at uh, the synthetic phonics, at at teaching phonics. We have a group of children that we've identified now that are basically what, what we say is barking at print. Yes. You know, they're very good at decoding. And actually, as they move into the top end of Key Stage 1 into Key Stage 2, we start to think, hang on a minute, how much of what they are reading are they actually comprehending and understanding? And that will have knock-on impact on uh, across the curriculum. So, yes, you having assessment tools that can help unpick that. I mean, there is there are a number out there. The one I used to use is the Diagnostic Reading Assessment because that gives uh, fluency, accuracy, comprehension. There's Others are on the market, as they say. Um, uh and and things like the the British picture vocabulary scale, you know, that's really good for identifying receptive language as well. Because I, I remember I had I had two children in year one um, when I was a Saint Cohen, and they both struggled with their speech sound articulation, and and it wasn't always easy to tune into their to what they were saying. Um, and I thought, wow, I, I did a, a, a this receptive language assessment with them, a BPVS, and I got two very different scores. Um, so they presented above the iceberg very similarly. Yeah. Under the iceberg, one's receptive language was absolutely where it should be. So he was understanding what was going on. He was clearly following instructions. He was picking up, you know, uh, what to do and and, and it was was was, you know, picking up that vocabulary um but the other child was very very low so there was a receptive and an expressive language uh, problem there so the intervening that we needed to do was going to be very different even though they presented the same you know what we had to do to intervene with those two children was very very different so having tools like that is going to be are going to be useful i say there's there, there's plenty out there they're not some of them are not necessarily cheap what I would say, if you're in a trust or you're in a, a collaboration of a, of a group of schools, then sometimes it's worth buying them and sharing them because you're not going to need them every day. So that's one way of sort of managing. So. One thing I've always, um, for years, talked about with schools, and you go into a school, and it's, it's really easy in a special school because there's often lots of children. So you can say you might have four children who are all P6. 
So you've got four children, all P6, yeah? They don't, they, you have, do you have the same expectations for them? Do they have the same profile? And the answer generally is no. They all were all unique. And when you just put P6 down and that's all you've got, it's not telling you enough. You need more detail. You need to identify that this one's their strengths are here, they're struggling. They've got a really spiky profile. This one just has a more generic flat profile. So it's more global. And it's being able to have that information. Immediately, it's another piece of the pie. And, I, and at the moment, we've, we've just literally, the whole of this podcast so far, we are still just talking about assessing. We're not even started about what we do next. We, are, we still just covered the assessing. And you said early on, this is something that people skip. They think, oh, they're struggling with writing. Right, what are we going to do? We need to get an intervention in writing. And off they go. And you, you can just miss out and end up chasing something for years where you're not sure what you're chasing. Yeah, or we, or we just leap to calling an outside agency in. You know, we do, you know that, that's the other sometimes the approach we take. And, and those outside agencies are, are, are gold dust. And, and, and we, you know, we're more challenged than ever before in, in being, being able to access them in the way we used to in the past. So we do need to develop our skills within schools to be able to unpick as much as we can there's yeah. always going to be the importance of when we need to tip into the outside agencies. Absolutely. They need to be within that continuum of assessment that they are there. But if we can be building on our skills and our awareness of a broad range of needs and our, we have sufficient tools to be able to unpick as much as we can at school, then we can be meeting a broader uh, range of needs than we would otherwise do and crucially and you used the word just a minute ago which is so important is build that profile because it will be different we may look at our SEM register and see this child is ASC this child is ASC that child ADHD that child ADHD that child they are all still going to be so the triggers yeah. are going to be different the issues you know the profile within that so even if we have got to the holy grail as you know some people you know, uh, perceive it to be, and, and indeed, in, in some aspects, it's so necessary. We've got that diagnosis. However, that's not a nice line ruled underneath the problem. And fabulous, here we go. You know, there's still the need to continue to dive under the iceberg, unpick what's going on, because that child changes and develops. You know, things that weren't so much a problem now are things that aren't. You know, and vice versa. You know, there's always the need to keep refining, revisiting honing down, building that profile so that we can continue to get into that planning stage and really know what we're doing and be efficient and effective in, in, in that plan. So um, one question about the SCND register and parents. So yes. hopefully you've had this conversation with parents all the way along. So you've started with your little concerns. Obviously, that's got more in-depth. That conversation has continued over the time. And now you're at the point, you've looked at that definition of SEND, the learning difficulty or the disability, and you feel this child meeting that. So do you put them on the SEND register first? Do you talk to the parents first? Do you talk to them afterwards? What would you say is the best process? Hopefully it really won't come as a shock because you've had this conversation and they're knowing this is a possibility. But what, what's the rough pro what is the process you would recommend? Well, as, as as you mentioned, and we've talked about now, you know that that conversation would have been ongoing um, anyway. But certainly, when you're at that point where you feel, actually, I, I think you know the best way forward now for that child is to put them on the register, so we can firm up in a more concrete way that additional different provision, um, 
put in place our our, our targets maybe and um and then get really into the intervening um that then you definitely need to be asking the parents um about putting them on the STM register i think the, the code of practice uses the verb inform i think that's a real shame it used that word to be perfectly honest because if you're really just going to inform them that you are placing their child i mean you can do that in a letter you know but that's really not in the spirit of the reforms is it i mean no. it, i don't know why they, that word was a verb was ever used but so certainly at that point you need to ask the parents talk to the parents about why you think this is the best way to go and nine times out of ten if you've had built that that trust that relationship up up to that point that shouldn't be a surprise um and you know parents will nine times out of ten be be okay with that and then you're placing them on the SCM register and then obviously then you're in that spiral of assess plan do review making sure that you're having those regular conversations with those parents about what you're what you're doing and that day-to-day communication as needed depending on what the needs are as well with, with the class teacher or form teacher because at, at this stage if you've got to this point where you're you're putting them on the SEM register you're basically putting in more support for their child so as you said nine times out of ten this should be a welcome thing because their child's going to get more support there's more focus you've highlighted that you completely agree there is a concern we've got to do this we are now going to do this so to me from a parent's point of view um there is a whole stigma around it but hopefully if you've had that conversation mm. um it should be an easy transition and some parents might be wanting it really a lot mm. others will be letting the school decide and trusting the school yeah and it does vary and i've had i've had all you know varying parents over over the years and um i think you know if you, if you do you do you tend to <laughs> You have a situation where some parents are desperate that you they do want their child on the rest register and actually you think I'm not actually sure they do you know they need to because actually they're doing really well and even though they might have had a diagnosed diagnosis of, of dys- dyslexia actually you know we're a dyslexia friendly school and we now how to make our reasonable bit adjustment so we're really you know we, we've done uh, we can see the 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 um adaptions we have in our classroom is ensuring that child's making good progress but the parents still want the child on the SEN register and I know that's 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 a challenging conversation but I think nine times out of ten it's about ensuring that the the parent knows that just because they're not on the SEN register does not mean to say they are somehow forgotten that they are lost that they are you know that their 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 needs are not understood um and I think that's about making sure you've got really effective communication and the parents can come, get them to come in and see what you're doing and see what kind of adjustments you're making and, and see how well that child is progressing um, so that they can be assured without needing to go on the register that that child's needs are being met. Conversely, you do get parents who don't want their children on the SEM register. You do yeah. get that sometimes happening. And often it is to do with the baggage of I just can't cope. That that to me is stressful. It, you're giving me something else to worry about. Maybe it's I don't want them labelled, and and that's that's understandable as as well. But again, um, it's having that conversation, reassuring them. Okay, what does it actually mean when we talk about an SEN register? You know, because I mean there is that that 
difficult connotations when we say registers for things, isn't there? So, yes. you know, again, it's what does this mean? And it's um, being open and honest and, and saying this is very much the normal part of what we do. And having things like your SEN information report on, on, on your website that talks about this as being very much the part of normal practice, keeping regular communication going should help um, those kind of conversations to reassure parents. So I think the SEND register is is a uh, bit of a minefield. Um, and um, I was talking to Kate before this episode. I think we are going to do hopefully an episode just on the SEND register because you just see so many conflicting opinions mm. on what, who should or shouldn't be on the register. Um, I've got my own questions and thoughts from being someone who's not involved in schools at that level on um, how you should do things and people kind of, but to me, there's a whole question I could just answer, ask you, Kate. But we'll save that for another podcast, okay. I think, because it is can be huge. Um, and as you as you said before, we started recording. It depends on the school. It really is a big. So it's not a here is the five point list. And if you do these five points, this is it depends on the school and what you're doing and how well that quality first teaching is embedded. Yeah, certainly does. Hmm. So we've covered a lot on this podcast. We haven't. In this podcast, we've talked about identifying SEN. We haven't really talked about identifying diversity SEND. It's been, in reality, all we've talked about, again, is assessing. It's, it's collating all that information to create that profile, that big picture. Um, it might give you the answer way later all in front of you. You might sit there and go, actually, this is really looking like X or Y. But as you said, you really might not know. You might have to go to an external advisor uh, or someone else to actually okay so i've got all this information i don't know what it tells me so in that situation who do you go to well that that would depend on broadly where the the needs are lying so if if you're looking at um uh cognition and learning kind of area generally speaking you would be thinking about an educational psychologist um, you might have be in an area where you have some uh, uh, specialist teachers in, in, a, in areas such as specific learning difficulties. You might be, you know, lucky enough to have those in your area. You might be calling on on those kind of people. Um, it, again, if you're if you're um, you might be around communication, it would be uh, speech and language therapists as well. Um, any area around sort of social, emotional, mental health, again, educational psychologists would be uh, useful to, to, to draw upon there. It might be that they're tipped into the CAMS category. That's usually quite serious if you're getting to that, that sort of stage because accessing CAMS is inc incredibly difficult. Um, uh, and then it might be around, obviously, your, your, your sensory, hearing, visual impairment. Almost certainly those things would have been picked up um early on so you should they should children should be in the system but that's not necessarily always the case so um needing to go through gp maybe if certainly you're picking up sort of um sensory needs initially and then a, a referral through to hearing and vision teams and then occupational therapists as well maybe if you're looking around sort of physical some areas of physical need or sensory processing that side of things um as well and of course you know children may have challenges right across you know any any number of those areas and it's kind of um starting somewhere really um uh, and obviously you know if if you've got uh, other sort of areas around their physical needs as well it might be 
going through paediatrician um, as well. And every every area's sort of systems as to how you do that, referral routes are very different in area to area. So making sure that you know um, how to access those specialists is really important. Um, if you're either new to an area as a SENCO or you're new to the SENCO role. So again, being part of local networks can help you know how to access those. Hopefully, if your local area's um, local offer is is very good, you know, then that will be clear navigation to that as well within the the um, local area's local offer to have a have a look on that as well. But there's nothing like actually talking to your fellow senkos in your area to know exactly who's the best person to talk to, and you know, give us a phone number and an email and a referral form. Is there's nothing better than that, really? Um, you know, I think I think just one other thing just to say here, Dale. It's a really big deal to put a child on the rest with SEM register. Yes. You know, we shouldn't be doing that, you know, in a kind of, you know, lunchtime conversation. Oh, let's put them on. You know, I think it it does strike me as quite a quite an important decision. And it, and it is one to make collaboratively. I think Senkos feel the weight of it on their shoulders. And I would say as a Senko, you are a gatekeeper. But the process of having identified those needs and and considering yes they do fit the code of practices definition or not is a collaborative discussion um i remember i was working in one school where um there was a large number of children on the SEM register there had traditionally been lots of kids on and a new head teacher had come in and actually identified that really they were just over identifying really and and um over time that was sort of honed down and more robust systems were put in place and and there was a much more accurate reflection of SEN in their school. But any new child that came on the SEM register that was being considered actually came to a team of people. So including the SENCO, the year group lead, the class teacher, they had that initial concerns checklist and they talked about it together, having obviously had conversation with the parent and the child as well. And I quite like that approach because I think it, it feels more robust. To me, if uh, someone just walks up to you and you're the same co, you go, oh, I've got another child for the register. The first thing you should respond to is, uh, okay, follow the process. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that process is for them to tell you, here is everything I know and here is everything I have done. Because to me, if they've only given me the first bit and not they've not done anything, it's like, okay, well, we're miles off the SEM register at the moment. There's lots we can do before that. Let's start doing those reasonable adjustments, those small changes. How can we make a few changes? Um, And also, probably as part of that process, have you talked to parents? Yes. So you shouldn't be referring them to the Senko without talking to the parents first. Not even, I'm going to refer you. It goes back to that we've found your child is struggling with or just those it, and the parents can be the best form of cpd often you know and, and the child themselves and their peers that, that's certainly what i found but but yeah and i think strategically as a senko if if you are recognizing that you've got teachers coming to you you know wanting to put children on the essay register not knowing what to do struggling and you're thinking yeah but what about this and what about this and have you done this and have you done that and have you unpicked this and that there you there think about yourself as a strategic leader you have identified a problem in the school yeah, so the there is process isn't there. there. Yeah, the process something is not happening happening right. So there is a need then to go back, talk to your leadership team, and say, "This is what I'm finding. Maybe we need to do a big push next term on communication friendly classrooms. 
dyslexia-friendly classrooms. Maybe we need to refresh our understanding and awareness of uh, autism spectrum condition or ADHD, because actually it's been about four years since we've done that and half our staff is new. You know, we haven't, you know. So, and to get that, that, that pushback into quality for inclusive quality first teaching to meet more of those needs and to enable our teachers to be able to make those adaptions in the light of what they're finding within their quality first teaching. So being again inclusive by design. So I think if 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 Senko's listening are feeling that, then maybe the answer isn't just to say, no, you can't put them on, no, you can't put them on, no, you can't put them on the register and go and fill out its initial concerns checklist. That that's maybe part of it, but actually there's another there's the other end of the problem to solve and that's the cpd needed there there's a training yeah. the support for teachers the confidence building as well because if, if they can't fill in the this is what i've noticed or this is what i've done yeah they might be able to articulate what they've noticed so it's again it's that cpd helping them this is what you might this looks like this is what this looks like this is what this looks like this is where children have difficulties and breaking that down um it's it's all that sort of stuff and it is all around cpd it's all around about raising the profile of send in schools yeah um and as you said earlier on that if you are children are going straight to the send register and then getting extra external support external organizations involved that's going to cost a lot of money yeah um and a lot of money can disappear on those when actually if you just firm up that process um um, Nottinghamshire is an authority where um, they they've really pushed quality first teaching, and there is very different way. I'm not going to do the whole thing, but basically, quality first teaching has been a huge push, and you support children in your classroom. And um, the way she said it was quite shocking, but actually, when she talked about it, it this was this was the answer was is we now do this. This is really good. Teachers support their children, and they only really come to me when this 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 hasn't worked. Yes. So it really is pushing that quality first. Um, the first level is being supported in the classroom. And that may cover a number of basic needs without any additional work, any additional resources or anything happening. Mm. Yeah. But it does come down to the priorities of that school. It does. It does. But I think, you know, and I know we've mentioned this before and, and, and it's, it's a bit of a hackneyed phrase, but it is so true that any of those adjustments that you learn to do and, and make for children with SCN will be benefiting a shed load of other kids as well. It, 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 it really will. And, and, and just going back to, you know, the, the conversations that need to be had around actually, I'm struggling with this child. I think they need to go on the SEO register. I don't know how to support them. You know, that does, again, doesn't necessarily need to be the Senko that does it at that stage. You know, the year group leads, heads of department, other, other you know, networking groups that, that, that teachers have in school that can help unpick, um, help that teacher just question what's going on. Having a really high-level pedagogical conversation, you know, about those children, that child's needs. Um, that I say, building that into a whole school approach is is going to help really be make sure that you're placing children on the SM register is a really robust process. Marvelous. We've been talking for quite a while. Mm. <laughs> um, so coming to the end um, so in the links you've sent me you've put in uh, SEND code of practice we're obviously going to link straight to that. You've also put in SEND register example. Yes, we can do that for you. Yeah, although I think 
many people will have probably their own uh, also within school systems that they're. But anyway, if you don't, we'll give you one. Uh, example of a continuum of assessment profile. Yes. So that is um, something that I developed a number of years ago now uh, with a group of, uh, of schools that um, is, has appeared in a number of publications now, um, which is basically looking at the we mentioned a whole raft of assessments earlier on when we were talking about criteria and standardized and things like that but it's uh thinking about Cinco's doing a bit of an audit um and this is a performer that you can use to do that of what are those assessment tools that you have in school across the four broad areas of need thinking about what you assessments that you do for all for some and then for a few so Thinking if you sort of for all is on the left side of the page, for some is in the middle and for a few is on the right side. You imagine you're getting your magnifying glass closer and closer and closer up to that child as you go across the page and under those four broad areas. So and then doing a bit of an audit helps you really identify as a Senko. What, where, if, where are we quite good for, for, for those tools across the four broad areas and where are we a bit sparse? And actually we could do with with um, some additional tools and resources and training maybe as well, of course, crucially, to be able to unpick those those um, uh, needs as well. So, And again, when I say a continuum of assessment, just to reiterate, that's assessment in its broadest sense. Yep, so we can put that on. Uh, and you've got initial concerns checklist. I'm guessing that's an example that you use. Yeah, again, it's just an example. Um, there are many out there, as I say to schools, when I when I ping them one over, it, it, this is your starting point. You know, feel free to amend, adapt as you see fit. But um, yes, we can give one of those as well. Marvellous. So a big thank you for coming on the show today. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. Really enjoyed it. Um, hopefully it's given everyone a bit more confidence in that process, a bit more understanding of when they come to me, what should I be saying? When do parents get involved? Because that parents' involvement is a big one I see coming up a lot. When do I involve parents? And the answer is from the very beginning, as soon as you have any concerns, they should be involved. I think just going through all of that and helping people realize the earlier you get parents involved, the easier those conversations are. Um, Because you're always really seeding the next conversation, aren't you? If I'm saying this, and I'm now seeding the next conversation. So we're going to go to this, but if this doesn't work, we might end up having to do this. And you're always just then seeding the next conversation. So the next conversation each time should be easier. So um, there's a lot in there. So um, we'll be putting the links to everything we've mentioned in the show notes um, and also sharing Kate's uh, contact details. And you can find the show notes on our website, www.thesendcast.com. So thank you for listening to the show. If you haven't subscribed already, you can subscribe by going to our website, www.thesendcast.com. You can also sign up for our newsletter to keep up to date with the latest news. Alternatively, you can follow us on Twitter, at The Sendcast, on Facebook, The Sendcast, on Instagram, The Sendcast, or on LinkedIn, just search for Sendcast. And if you want to get in touch with me, let me know your thoughts, suggest topics, or anything else, please send an email to hello at thesendcast.com. Um, and normally I talk about the virtual same conference, but as we've literally just been talking about assessment on this show and the, the importance of having a really good understanding of your child, children's needs, their profile, where their strengths are, where their weaknesses are, I'm going to talk about B-squared assessment. Um, so B-squared, we've been going for coming up to 25 years. We started in the classroom. We started by my mum creating an assessment system that 
wasn't out there and she needed and she's going to use it till something else better came along. And it was about her being able to show small steps, show where the strengths are, show where the weaknesses are, show where they need support, help plan those next steps. That's what it's all about. And that's grown over the years. So we started paper-based in 2000. We launched our software. We're now just launching Connecting Steps version 5. So that's been going on all, all web-based, all amazing. And in terms of content, we're still doing the same thing we've always done. We're taking what the government's, expect, government's expectations and breaking those into smaller steps. So we have the end-of-year outcomes broken down into small steps. So a child working in year six, working at year two, we can identify using our assessment why they're in working at year two. The fact that it's not all of it at year two. Some bits could be up at year three, year four. There's just one small area holding them back at year two. So we can do all of that. Below year one, we have our own assessment leveling system. So we have three levels going all the way down to around P4. So if you've got children working below year one, we have levels. Again, you can still show the small steps of progress. You can show how they are working towards and and it covers the broad, the full broad curriculum. So where the pre-key stage standards really annoyingly just have reading and writing and math and nothing on spoken language, which is a real annoyance, we have spoken language at this level. So you can actually then start to look at their reading and their writing and their expressive and receptive communication and start putting up a much bigger picture that interestingly their uh, comprehension and their language skills are behind. Okay, that's quite interesting. So it gives you that broad understanding. And then once you've got those assessments in, there's lots of information we can pull out. So our whole sort of idea is, is you do your recording throughout the year. We can then do individual reports. We can do group reports. We can do whole sort analysis. Um, and as well as having that primary system, we do our early years assessment framework. So for those in early years struggling to show progress, we have small steps of progress there. For those who are looking for the engagement model, um, the engagement model is an interesting thing. Um, I'm not a fan of what it is because it has to go alongside, so it doesn't do much. But we have an assessment system for those not yet engaged in subject-specific learning. We have an assessment system so you can, again, profile their needs, really show their strengths and weaknesses, highlight, work out the next steps. And if you go to the other end, the older children. So we have functional skills. We have employability skills. We have life skills. And we also have, for all children, we have our preparing for adulthood. So we have a huge range of skills, huge range of assessments. We also have our autism progress. So profiling someone's autism, so it's linked to certs. So we're looking at communication, social interaction, flexibility thought, and emotional regulation. So you now with that, you're looking into those four broad areas of need more, how that's having an impact. We also have within our assessments, whether you're looking at the primary, our um, SEN assessment system, or the post-16 stuff, we have the new um, uh, religious, uh, religious relationship, sex, education, RSE, and that also has mental health. So that's going to be hitting in some of those relationships, how they're working with their peers. So there's a huge range of content available. Um, and I've talked just for a couple of minutes about that, but I can go on for hours because there is a lot. It does so much more. Um, but you can find out more about our assessment going to our website, which is www.bsquared.co.uk. Under there, if you go to curriculums and subjects under products, you'll see the list of all the different frameworks we do and you'll see samples and you'll see the level of detail we go into. So that's going to help you work out, okay, that's much more than what we've got now. That's really going to help me show this and work out those next steps and really also empower teachers to know what those next steps look like. Um, 
And if you want to find out more, all over our website, in the bottom right, and various buttons all over the screen, you can book a free online meeting. Um, and that's really good because we get to take you through our way of doing things, the ability to work across multiple levels, show nonlinear progress, small steps of progress, changes in engagement, how we can do all of that with our system that is still really easy and really quick to use. So yeah, on our website, just look for those book a free online meeting, book a time that suits you, and you can just book a meeting really quickly and easily at any time of the day, and it will show you when we're available. And I will also put a link into the show notes so you can book a meeting direct with me and ask any questions you have around assessment that you would like. So that's me just talking about B-squared. Um, so thank you for listening to the show. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Same Car. So it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Thanks, Dale. Thanks, everyone. Bye.